Hi, I'm Jennifer Wilde, and you're listening to Sober Exposure. If it's about recovery, we're going to cover it. It's like one big therapy session, but it's free. So thanks for joining our dysfunctional family as we uncover recovery with Sober Exposure. Let's go. Welcome. It's Jennifer Wild, Sober Exposure. And I've been waiting for like, I don't know, like I think a month and a half for this one. What I really want to know is what it was like to do all those drugs in California and LA in the 90s. I mean, like I was I was on Sunset Strip in the 80s, so I know that scene, but Danny, the anthem of every party in the 90s was jump around jump 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 oh my god my producer is cringing right now because i'm singing but i mean you couldn't go to a party without hearing that song and so we've got danny we'd like to welcome danny how you doing great to be on your show you uh you said something about the 80s in the 80s i was in in san fernando valley most of the time not up on the strip mm-hmm. and by the time you know we were coming of age 90s was our was our error era. <laughs> Error and error. And I'm sure a completely different uh, scene than the, the 80s hair metal stuff that I remember. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know um, uh, if you're friends with our good friend Jimmy DeAnda from the Bullet Boys. And Jimmy was all about the 80s. So we got, we were talking about the 80s, the hair bands, and how Eddie Van Halen was um dodging valerie to go screw some other chick and it was awesome and you have a whole different scene um yeah and- I, have a, I have a completely whole different scene and uh some of it you could see on kid 90 the soleil documentary that she did yeah. for hulu which is fantastic dude you don't even have to tell me because way before we booked this interview i saw the entire thing it was like she was doing like a nine step and for those that don't know uh, we're talking about punky brewster and let's talk about this documentary for a minute because it was really awesome. First of all, how annoyed were you with her with that camera in the '90s? <laughs> you know, it, 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 I'm glad you asked. It's a, it's a great question. You know, that was a it was a rare thing to have somebody with a camera ever present during a lot of your, uh, I guess, formative years, and or just right at that the precipice of being. I, I went from like a normal kid or somewhat normal kid to, you know, air quote celebrity or, or rap star kind of, you know, it was all overnight. And she, she was already a, a child star and we were just friends. When I, I got introduced to her, I was smitten with her just because she was the, she was a, a, a just a bright shining being, if you will, you know, she's like a little girl. So she was, I mean, she must've been 17 or 18 when I first met her. Uh, and I was already into rough and tumble stuff. So I didn't, you know, do, she was just a, a good positive, um, you know, and she just like hanging it out. So she was like kid sis at first, you know what I mean? It was like, I was already dating somebody else and I was dating like porn stars at the time and, 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 and <laughs> all kinds of weirdos. And so she was just always there and she brought her camera around. And this is, you know, if you're listening at home and you're, you, you're the, what is it, the, a millennial, we didn't always have cell phones. And back then I had a cell phone. I was lucky enough to have one, but they had no cameras on it. And so if you brought a camera around to the spot, you might be asked to leave because it was like a, it was frowned upon, but little Soleil with her big old VCR camera, VHS camera with the, hers looked like a big tablet. It was like a rare one that they gave her to promotionally. So she could shoot and be like a, a spokesperson for this camera. And the camera looked like a really thick, 
It was like the thickness of like a dictionary, but it looked <laughs> like an iPad. If you can imagine that you could just look at the screen and that was revolutionary at the time. Prior to that, you had to look in a little peephole to see what you were filming. And at first she brought it around and it was novel. Then it became, I'm sure, a little bit annoying. But then you, like anything else, if you bring it around enough, you just accept that she's always, it's just there and you forget about it. And I think that's where the magic happens. When you start to forget about that it's there and she she captures those innocent or, you know, organic moments. Now, that also is a double-edged sword because when she told me 20 years later that she had captured all this stuff and she was planning yeah. to do a documentary, my heart skipped a beat. And it wasn't in in a, in a good way because I was a fool back then, and I said stuff and did stuff and acted in ways that, looking back, if it, the 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 stuff I remember makes me cringe. So I was like, oh no, this this can't be good. So I, first of all, she was like the pioneer of reality television. Actually, when you think about it, yeah. I mean that was she was she was way ahead of the game because that's reality television. Of course, and and then being who she was, it added like some kind of like credibility to. Because in other words, if it was just like a friend. I'm like, why are you doing this? Like, what are you doing with it? How are you going to amortize or leverage this footage against me somehow? But because Soleil was such a, she was already a star. She was a child star way before I ever, you know, came around making records. Um, It just became, we just, we, we thought, wow, we must be really special if she's documenting all the stuff we're doing. Yeah, like if, and and back then, if if I'm walking around with a video camera, my documentary, uh, 25 years later isn't going to be as cool as Soleil's AKA Punky Brewster's because she's like talking about how Charlie Sheen was asking her out on dates and all these parties and all this cool stuff, you know, believe me. Yeah. Hers, hers was pretty cool. So when you're talking about the stuff that was embarrassing and, and we must say like, we, this is sober exposure. You don't know me that well. I am a complete drug addict to the utmost that you can imagine. Um, I'm a radio personality. I worked in rock radio yeah, for years. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, come on, right? Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But these days, you know, when you go into, uh, I've said this before, the music industry, and if you go into a radio station, it's like a bank, you know? Yeah, it's, just, it's changed so much. But yeah, I was there in the heyday. And, you know, you could have a rock star, you could have a radio disc jockey. They're not all going to turn out to be drug addicts. That's where it becomes like the disease concept and how, you know, predisposition and boy, we could all talk about that forever. But t- tell me, like, give me like the, the cliff notes version of Danny boy. And the real, this is Danny O'Connor. So I keep looking at Danny. O. but I mean, come no on. Worries. I know. I was just, I was just, yeah. you just give, me shit. But give me the like cliff notes version of the beginning. Cause I know you had oh. hard beginnings. I do. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, to cut you off, I'll just tell you how, in a, in a nutshell, I grew up, with uh, my father was in prison when I when I was two months old, we got evicted from our apartment in Brooklyn. Me and my mother, we went to live with my grandparents. That was fantastic for me because they were doting while my mother was at work nights at the Chase Manhattan Bank. My mother then remarried to another alcoholic. Who my father was a clear alcoholic and and, and I guess criminal if he was in jail. And then the stepfather was pretty similar to that. Um, I grew up in the seventies in New York City and there was a lot of abusive stuff that I saw in my house and outside in the, we lived in the project. So we moved out of my grandparents to the projects when she remarried, which was like a mile away. Um, and I just grew up in the seventies with rough and tumble. A lot of dudes were coming back from Vietnam war, a lot of heroin addicts, the city, New York city was bankrupt. The, you know, it was like, it was all kinds of stuff. So I just thought it was the normal way to grow up. Um, 
We moved to California when I was six years old. That stepfather died of cirrhosis from drinking and using at 35, which is crazy when I got 35 and I got sober and I'm, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. And then when we got to LA, I was really like a latchkey kid. My mother said, here's a key, don't lose it. And she was busy working all day long and then would sleep, you know, she would work, eat, sleep, repeat. And so in this, in the eighties, a lot of kids were just like me. We lived in condos. I wasn't a poor kid, but I wasn't a rich kid. My mother, my mother had a good job, but she had two kids that she didn't, you know, and she, she favored one and I wasn't the one of them. So went back and forth every summer to New York and New Jersey. So I could, she could get me out of her hair and it creates a great, even though, you know, I didn't like the house I grew up in the traveling part as a kid was fantastic. So I look forward to going back East every uh, summer. And for me, by the time I got to like late junior high school, uh, I only went to the first grade of, I mean, the 10th grade, but the first year of uh, high school. But I was like a wizard because I was, I was a New Yorker who was into disco because of my mother's record collection. And hip hop was an easy transition for me. And I would bring back all of the the stuff that I learned that summer about New York and hip hop and break dancing and graffiti. And I would bring New York, everything I knew about surfing and skateboarding and, and our fashion. I mean, as soon as I get off the plane, kids knew I was from L.A. because I was wearing Vans and OP shorts and Lightning Bolt T-shirts. And so it was like a culture thing. You know, the world was a lot bigger back then. There wasn't the Internet. There wasn't cell phones. There wasn't, you know, MTV was the only thing that you could kind of get a glimpse of, you know, that yeah. stuff. And so all the, all the while, and, you know, I didn't start drinking until I was about 15 years old. It was, it was at nightclubs. They used to have teen nightclubs in, in, in LA County and they were all the rage at the time. And what we did was drink in the parking lot and then go in. And I remember my first drink, like it was yesterday because it changed two things about me fundamentally. And I know that by doing the work in the 12 steps and looking back, but at the time at 15, when I got that screwdriver in the parking lot and I mixed a swig of vodka with a swig of orange juice. And then I went inside that nightclub and it hit me and it hit me that way that, you know, uh, you recall again that I recall like yesterday. Um, and what it did for me, it changed the way I was looking at people for the first time in my life. I didn't think they were talking about me. I, I thought they were talking about me, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? Uh, like, look at yeah. that guy. How cool is that guy? Yeah. And it also changed the way I was looking at myself for the first time. My, my clothes felt like they were the right clothes that they fit. I didn't have that pent up anxiety and that angst and I could dance with girls and I could talk to, you know, girls and I wasn't afraid to fight. And it just, it loosened me up. And I remember thinking, man, why did I wait 15 years to discover this thing? <laughs> yeah. And then my yeah. next thought was like, I will never not feel like this, it, 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 you know, uh, again. And I pursued that as the, as the book says to the gates of death or insanity. Now I'd like to qualify that by also telling you that drugs was never in the picture until the end of my, you know, again, air quotes or hashtag uh, career as short as it was, I was always, I was a B-boy and, and that in, in hip hop terms is a break boy. Or it's like a, you know, when you're a hip hop, when you live and breathe and die hip hop, you're a B-boy. And there's two things you don't want to be in hip hop. One is a, is a, is a snitch and two is a, is a, a drug user. So if you, you know, white lines don't do it was like the hit song by, you know, Curtis Blow and no rap. Oh, yeah. the, the the irony is that all these rappers were using Blow back in the days, but the, the funny part is they were, they were singing against it. Yeah, that's what I don't, I'm just going to ask you. I thought it was cool to be a, to be a, well, I guess it was cool to smoke weed. And then, what was this? Nah, like? That's the 90s though. In the 80s, you didn't see any of that. And you didn't see none of that. You saw, and you, you, this is the problem too. And this is the, the this is the, I faced this problem with, with 
not only my not it's not my sobriety, but my morals and my standards have completely 180 because of sobriety. And I can I'll explain. But you know, on the streets, we admire pimps, uh, dealers, gangsters, criminals. Yeah, uh, we, those are all honorable things. When you do a 180 and you do the work and you get clean and you do your thing. I don't look at those as, as admirable characters or or people that I want to emulate. Unfortunately, hip hop is based in large part by emulating Harlem drug dealers, fashion and, and styles of gangsters. And, and so as a kid, it just seemed fitting. My father was a gangster. My father died. He was murdered when I was 17. My stepfather was a, was a tough guy. Uh, my mother loved the, the, you know, your proverbial street tough guy. So you just rolled right over like something that is so pertinent in your life about your father. Like, really? Yeah, well, that's, I mean, but because for me, I really never knew him. And, you know, that's the thing, you know, being a man and being a man are two different things. It's the, it's that kind of that duality. You know, I have a, I have a, a, a godfather who's gay, and in a time where it was very hard to be openly gay, that man taught me more about being a man than my father did, who was a tough guy who was never around because he was either in prison or he was on a you know he was on one. And so again, um, yeah, I, I had very poor role models, and then I gravitated to, towards even worse ones. <laughs> Which I won't name because they're living and they may some of them may still be my friends or at least associates, but uh, you know you got to be careful who you choose as your role models. And growing up like every other you know red blood American kid, it may have started with you know my version of Marlon Brando's would have been the Mickey Rourke's and the Matt Dillons and the characters that they portrayed, whether it was Dallas Winston and the Outsiders or Mickey. Uh, we're going to talk about that too, babe. Oh yeah, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And you know, eventually, what I'm getting to is for me, and I don't know about for anybody else, but there are there are consequences. And and caught and can and uh, what is it called? Uh, you know, you you pay the price. And all my life, my mother, whatever she saw in me, it terrified her. What my mother saw in me terrified her. And I know now it, what she saw in me was the same that she saw in my father. It was like when I'm mad, I I you know, you see a change. When I'm drinking, you see a change. The way I smoked cigarettes at the time offended her because I pulled so hard on the drag, like I was trying to squeeze every ounce of nicotine out of it. And I see that in other people that I hang around with or know that I, when they're doing their thing and I'm like, yee, like, ugh, it disgusts me because it reminds me of what I used to do. So I have a little empathy for my mother at that point. I do not yeah. have a good relationship with my mother. I probably remind her too much of my father who did a lot of damage uh, to her. And I was, it, my mother told me religiously, I will be just like him, dead or in prison by the time I'm 21. And so we make a record. Uh, when I was 20, the record sells millions of copies. Um, and it saves me from all the, the, the repercussions and the, and the, and the, you know, and the paying the price of all of the stuff I was doing prior to that, I was doing a lot of credit card theft, selling drugs, you know, uh, both cocaine and, and, and a little bit of, you know, whatever, you know, was going around shrooms, weed, whatever, but primarily cocaine. Um, and then, you know, you pay a price for that stuff. I was in and out of jail at that point. And then the record hits and it, it pulls me out of that, but it pulls me out of it for about eight years. And then when the band breaks up and the bills are stacking up and I have no other way to, to, to pay these bills, Everlast goes on to making a, another record and gets a Grammy and sells a million records. And our DJ is in Limp Biscuit now and is making more money than the three of us. And, you know, in riding the new wave, I, I was on a downward spiral and this is where I drugs come into my, my, my story. And in the nineties, 
in LA, you may or may not know, there was a lot of methamphetamines and a lot of my favorite rockers became my friends and they were doing it like it was no big deal. So in, in the hip hop world, even in the 90s, you, you said something about marijuana. Yes, Cypress Hill made it cool for for marijuana and hip hop, without a doubt. And Cypress and us. Snoop Dogg, I mean, you think it's, you know. You- yeah, Snoop Dogg came after, but prior to that, it was, you know, it was mainly celebrated and brought to the forefront by by Cypress Hill. Uh, yeah. Yes, then Snoop Dogg came, then, then the, then the, then the, then then the the genie was out of the bottle and everybody started you know admitting and and celebrating the the the, the open use of marijuana but for me i was already on the the meth train at the end of my career it started off with ecstasy i couldn't do ecstasy habitually so i needed something else i started doing my own stuff which was cocaine i had long since stopped selling it because of the group but it was just too much of an emotional roller coaster for me and then i found methamphetamines and it made me feel like it did that first drink that I had at that nightclub phases, it made me feel like I was invincible. I could make up for lost time. I could focus on taking care of all the stuff that I wasn't taking care of. I could clean up my place. But uh, that thing was a, was a complete downward spiral for about four years until I ended up, you know, hopeless, uh, homicidal, suicidal, you know, um, and I found that uh, luckily I, I ran into a guy who had some recovery and uh, he introduced me to the program. Now, I, I, I always forget I did go to rehab during that downward spiral to, 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 to get people to leave me alone because it was apparent that I was going downhill. I was only there to just to put on a show, you know, that to, yeah. to pretend that I would do what was required so that the band didn't break up. But the band broke up anyway. The band was going to break up. Yeah. You, you, and you talk a lot about the book, which is interesting because a, a lot of things that we talk about on this show are, I mean, we just did a show about California sober, which is just ridiculous. I don't even want to get into right now. It's a new w- way that people think that they can stay sober, which means that they can smoke weed and take psychedelics. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, you did it the old school way with the book. And it sounds like you're just an AA all the way kind of guy. Of course. Well, I mean, I've had two, I've had two sobriety. So in 2000, I got sober. I had a, a, a guy who, who immediately I asked him to become my sponsor. He was a friend. Uh, he made the program look good. It's attraction rather than promotion. Um, I went to my first meeting. I didn't know who spoke or what they said, but I do remember hearing laughter. Uh, I went back the second day, despite him not showing up because he had a, uh, uh, he had to pick up somebody, a family member from something. And I was, terrified to go by myself anywhere, even though I'm a six foot six alpha male who, you know, have punched my way through most of my problems prior to sobriety. I was terrified to go to a meeting alone. I don't know, stranger danger, whatever. But I went despite being scared. And that's sometimes the best thing I could ever do is just do something do the next indicated thing, despite what my head tells me, because my head always tells me, nah, you don't have to go. Fuck it. Who cares? Kick back. You'll, there'll always be another chance, you know, and, and that's a lie for me. So I went the second time again. I don't know what they said. I don't know who spoke, but I remember hearing laughter and it had been so long since I had heard anybody sincerely laugh. And, you know, we laugh at the sickest stuff because we, we all relate to that stuff. And uh, I just felt at home for the first time in my life. And uh, within a month, I got a, a commitment. Within three months, I, they gave me the treasury commitment. And I'm no thief, but I did uh, I did feel great about them letting me count money and put it in an envelope and sign off on it and give it to the treasurer, uh, to the, the person who was a clubhouse sobriety, Radford Hall, in the, in the San Fernando Valley. And then... Um, at six months, they asked me to speak at a meeting. I could not believe it. I spoke. I was terrified to do it, even though I'd been on stage in front of thousands of people speaking in front of, you know, 
30 or 40 people was terrifying because it was intimate and I would be up there telling my story and my truth. And, and, but I did it despite not wanting to do it. And it was fantastic. And I came out feeling a thousand pounds lighter. And, um, I just kept putting one foot in front of the other. And at, at a year I'd done all my 12 steps. I felt like I was a fast track, uh, you know, AA one a month was about as fast as I could go. I was sponsoring people. I was going to many meetings and, uh, Around year one and a half, I was employable again, and somebody messed up and gave me half a million dollars to make a solo record. And I say mm. they messed up because the record never came out. The record was cool, but it was at a label that just was, you know, um, they were a management company turned label, and then the, the label didn't really pan out. But they paid me, and I started getting a little money in my pocket, was back in the studio, and, and, and by year two, I was a little hip, slick, and sick, and I thought, shit needs to go to as many meetings as I'm going to. I kind of got the money back. I got a new car. I got a new watch. People are starting to go, ooh, he's making a record again. Uh, and year two, I really coast, and I only make the, the, the Friday night meetings where the chicks are at or, or you know, the, a meeting here and there. Um, anybody's asking me to sponsor them. I'm a referral system at this point. I'm telling them, nah, you know, I'm a little bit busy. You don't know who I am, but maybe maybe my boy Tommy can do it for you or Joey can do it for you. And I, I just wasn't – I was slowly backing out. And at year three, I called my sponsor and I told him, you know what? I don't think it was that bad. Clearly I had a drug problem, but I don't think drinking is my problem. And uh, maybe I could just have a drink. And he said, man, my hat's off to you. Uh, you know, the book says, if you don't think you're an alcoholic, go try some controlled drinking. And I said, well, I appreciate you being so easy about it. And, and, and I, I, you know, I, I wish you wish you luck. And he goes, I wish you luck, Danny. And uh, I want to tell you, I, I did go out there and just try to drink like a normal human being. I thought I'm Irish. It's my birthright. You know, how bad could it get? But within 72 hours of drinking, I realized that what I was after was not the drink and that what was found at the bottom of Corona bottles was not what I was looking for. And uh, I ended up calling the dealer. And uh, she said, Danny? And I said, yeah. She said, long time. I said, yeah, about three years. She goes, what, what do I owe the, the, the honor to? I said, I'm looking for that. She said, that? I said, yeah, that. You still got that? She's like, yeah, who's it for? I'm like, it's not for me. She's like, cool, I'll be right over. And I can, and I was right back on methamphetamines. Uh, it was a problem immediately. I thought, man, if this goes bad, I can always go back to AA. Within 30 days, I was back in AA. Ooh, broke my sort of anonymity. But I was back in the 12-step program. Um, and I raised my hand as a newcomer, and it just didn't work. I, I threw the gift away, and I would get... Six days and then relapse. I'd get five days and relapse. I'd get 20 days and I'd relapse. And I just couldn't hear the message anymore. I was going in and out. And it was it was the worst time of my life. I spent another two and a half years till I finally ended up with very little teeth in my mouth, living on somebody's couch in a warehouse on La Brea in Santa Monica. My car was impounded and they had sold it off because I was scared to pick it up because I knew that there were drugs in the car. My license was suspended. I had a warrant for my arrest for failure to appear. I had no money, no outside stuff, and and I was hopeless. Again, suicidal and homicidal. I, was, I didn't want to live, but I didn't want to die. But I couldn't live the way I was living. And... I was, you know, it was the incomprehensible demoralization, of course. And then by chance of fate, a guy that I don't like and I don't associate with anymore, but he was the one who reached out and called me and randomly he would check in and say, man, you deserve to have a good day today. And if you ever want to go back to a meeting, let me know. And uh, that day he did, he did, he did hit me up and I, and I said, man, I need to go to a meeting bad. And uh, he said, well, I'll be in Hollywood today, tonight in an hour, there's a meeting on 
you know, Melrose and whatever it was, the whatever meeting it was called. And I said, I'm about a quarter mile away from me. He goes, why don't you meet me there? And for whatever reason, I met him there and that window opened up again. I've been uh, happily sober ever since. That's been a little over 16 years ago. Um, and your sobriety dates my ex-husband's birthday, April 15th, right? Yeah, tax day. God yeah. damn humor i still got a tax debt from the 90s you want to talk about the 90s i could do a yeah. documentary about how to get in trouble with the irs <laughs> you said so many things that are so important it's so typical addiction alcoholism we get our shit back we get it back we forget who we are i can't even i'm a chronic relapser myself like i've been in a, uh, trying to get this thing since I was 16 years old, I was a teenage alcoholic, drug addict, cocaine addict by 17. You name it, it's happened. Drug of choice, crack. I clean up well. I clean up fast. Yeah. And I forget. And just like you said, ah, maybe I don't have to go to that meeting. Or the Friday night meeting with the chicks, with the guys. You know, the social meeting where you dress up or, and you just want to look cute or whatever. And, it, and then you forget who you are. Next thing you know, for me, I'll be maybe acting out in another drug of choice. And then the next thing you know, full blown. And it's like once you wake up, that friggin' devil, and it shows its ugly head. There you are, three and a half years later, out there, back where you were, homeless, feeling like a piece of shit, not able to get sober again. You pick up right where you left off, if not worse. They say you pick up where you well, left off, but I, I always pick up worse. Of course. We're worse. Well, what, yeah, I mean, what, but there's a whole chapter just, and it's called How It Works. It's fantastic. <laughs> and nothing works better than working with others. And so I, I can tell you if you're listening and you don't know what, you know, the 12 steps are, when I got to the program, I saw the steps and the traditions and I thought, shit, those ain't for me. I'll tell you what, I got a ninth grade education and I thought I'm not doing advanced anything. I just came here to just to get the heat off and, and I'll take it one day at a time. And that's exactly what I did. The first time I did my, my steps, but I didn't live in the steps and I didn't practice them in all my affairs. Uh, this time when I came back to the program, it was explained to me, Danny, if all you get out of sobriety is sobriety, it better be enough because you're, like I said, you're hip, slick, and sick, and you like fast cars and expensive watches and, and, and you know, all kinds of other stuff, and that is not what's in the promises. The promises are happy, joyous, and free, and I was beaten at that point to the – I didn't want – I think – what I'm trying to say is that when I first got sober the first time in 2000, I thought if I was just a good boy, that the universe or God would restore me to insanity, which was I'd get my old stuff back and my old life back. Yeah. What I secretly wanted was a band reunion and to be back on the top of the charts and have all of the big houses and big cars and, and Hollywood friends. And that was like, a, that was like a, that's, that's not how this works. You didn't want to change. No, you wanted, of course. I just you wanted, wanted to be, you wanted all the same shit. You wanted the same life. That was killing me anyway, of course. Yeah. And so this, that was a life that was, that, that was using. Right. Exactly. And so, the, this time, I come uh, to my heart of heart to a man to God. I was like, "Look, I just want this to stop. I can't live like this anymore. All I wanted was a, some reprieve uh, to and, and to have a calm heart and a calm head. And uh, I I swore that I would do whatever was asked of me and then some. And that's exactly what I've done. I've never done this program perfectly, the twelve step program. But the only step that you have to do perfect is willingness. And that's step one. Um, and I'm always willing, even despite what my head tells me, I'm always willing. But it, the 
where the rubber meets the road for me is 10, 11, and 12. Um, it's trust God, clean house, help others. And I, uh, the helping of others is, has always been, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to say it's hard to do even, you know, the more sober I get, the more I'm like, geez, do I really got time to do, but I always have to be the hand of sobriety when it's needed. And so I live in that. Uh, I start my day off with a gratitude list. Uh, I do a little quiet time in my mind. I'd like to tell you that I do 20 minutes of um, meditation. I do not. And I don't always do my gratitude list because I get, it goes, it comes and it goes. I go on like, you know, long runs of doing it every day and then it becomes annoying. But for the, and again, it's, it's, progress and not perfection. But I start off every morning with gratitude and I try to quiet my head down. And then I make a prayer for the day and I turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand it. And for me, for within, you know, a couple hours, I'll be back praying, God, please remove this anger or please remove this idiot who's driving in front of me too slow. Don't they know I got places to be? The point is I'm, I'm connected to a power greater than myself. And I believe that the program is designed to connect you to something greater than yourself that can stop you from drinking and using the steps have provided me the best tools for living that I've ever been that I've ever known. And I can assure anybody listening when I first got to the 12 step program and then into the rooms, the last thing I was going to do was those things. But somebody said to me, how well do you want to get bro? And I was like, you know, what do I got to do? And they're like, then you got to, you got to work this and you got to carry the message. So I, so far so good, 16 plus years. Um, I've had a great run and then I've had a terrible run. I was I, I was married in sobriety, and I got divorced in sobriety. I was in businesses where I was partners in businesses, and then I've got thrown out of those businesses, and it cost me, you know, a, a lot. Um, I've had my heart broken. I've broken hearts. I've I've done things that I thought, oh, I would. I only did those when I was high. I've done stupid stuff in sobriety too, and I've had to make amends, and I've had to clean up my side of the street. So life, lives, right? It's life on yeah. life's terms. I was just gonna say, you're doing life on life's terms. That's a difference now. It's difference. and it's tough, but you know what? It's one day at a time, and you know what? Um, I try to stay in the moment. I'm the kind of guy who wants to future trip and and get all caught up into outside stuff or I want to look back and go, God, if I just went left instead of right, if I just said that instead of this and that, you know, I, you know, it was explained to me and I explained to other people, you know, if you're, if you're constantly in today or tomorrow, you're missing the beauty of today. I mean, in yesterday or or tomorrow, you're missing right now. And so I try to just take it one day at a time. Sometimes it's one hour at a time. And right now I I don't, the gratitude is what shows me. I don't, I don't do without. I woke up this morning. I had a hot shower. I woke up in a safe environment. I woke up next to someone who loves me. I had hot coffee. I have internet, high speed internet. I I have a dollar in my pocket. I mean, really, what what are my complaints? And I couldn't say that when I first got sober 16 years ago. 16 years Mm -hmm. ago, I had no dollar in my pocket, uh, no clean water running through the spot I was staying in, weren't for my arrest. It was dangerous part of the neighborhood at that time, and people were always trying to break in the spot I was staying in. It was just – it really – I had to get right sized and maybe some people don't have that, that problem. But for me, you know, an egomaniac with low self-esteem best described, I hear it a million times in the program and in the rooms and I was no different. You know, I was too cool for school yet. I didn't know the first thing about living. And so I really had to learn from you guys. And I watched a lot of people I have, I have also a good way of learning from other people's behaviors and I see what you do. And then I try to mimic it and, the the best examples in my life have always been in the program and that's just my story you know 
it's it's um it's awesome and it's obvious that you you know are really working your 12 step by helping people because me with this podcast I, you know i ask a lot of people to come on the show and it's the ones that are really walking the walk and doing the work that take the time to go on a podcast to help people you right. know not everybody wants to do that and it is so i struggle so much with that too with the ego you know it's like Oh, so I, being the person that I was when I was in, I mean, I, my heyday also was the 90s Rock and Roll Hall of Fame city, Cleveland, run it rock, you know, it's just biggest rock station in the country. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame was opening, breaking bands like Pearl Jam, interviewing everybody. Like, you know, I thought I was the shit. Yeah. And then my career went into the toilet and drugs and alcohol took over. And Every single day, you know, I have to do the same thing. I have to look at myself because I struggle with gratitude. And so you just helped me so much with that. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'll send you my list tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we you know, back and forth. Listen, I used to send them out and then I get, you know, I get to the point where I stop doing it, but then I redo it. But I'll send you my list and then you send me yours and then you'll understand. And then it becomes a, it becomes a, you'll, you'll send it to other people and it becomes habit. And that's the good thing to form a good habit. But the gratitude always keeps me here because the things I thought I was, was after, those were the things that were killing me anyway. And the yes. that I got that I didn't even know existed. Like I said, a calm heart, meaning like I'm not always stressed and panicked, a quiet mind. And I have to work on that every day. That doesn't just, it, it, you know, they say, uh, you know, the fear of economic insecurities would leave you temporarily. I'm always have a healthy fear of homelessness. I live at the top of a historic hotel in Tulsa, Oklahoma in Wade Phillips old apartment, who was the founder of, uh, Philip 66, the oil magnet. I mean, it was one of the richest dudes on the planet back in the day. I have a very nice, comfortable life. It's a long way from living in that warehouse with a couch and no, you know, in, a, in, a, in an old warehouse from a friend who even took pity on me and let me live there in the first place. But it's not the where I live that makes me anything. It's not the things I drive. I have nice things, and but those are, they don't make me anymore. They used to be everything. And when I lost those things, I was nothing. You could take all those things from me. What I have is inside now. And that's the inside job. And the treasure chest in my heart and my soul, they collect experiences and not possessions. You know what I mean? It's bringing me to because so when I was thinking Danny boy, and I saw the documentary and the party boy, first of all, I thought this went a whole different direction. I thought we were going to talk about like celebrities in the nineties, the club scene. And I thought it would be a lot of war stories. I, and you know, the amount of recovery that you have in, in you, and I, you could tell that you did the work is just astonishing. And I mean, you're going to help so many people today with this podcast. And I'm so grateful for that. Thank, Thank you, you so much. I see that with you too, as you were describing the, you know, Cleveland and the power station and all that stuff. Like people, alcoholics are like children or like pets. Like if a, if a dog doesn't like somebody, I, I don't, I don't know that I trust the person, you know, I look at them sec, you know, if the kids are, you sh and alcoholics are the same way. You can't fool an alcoholic. So the higher you went and the stuff that you did make you way more relatable also to certain people, to other people, they won't, you know, same with me. People are like if that Irish beer drinking, fighting hip hop dude can stay sober, maybe there's a chance for me. I mean, I made a career out of drinking and fighting, you know what I mean? And now it was stripped away from me. I felt like part of my heritage was ripped away. You know, I can't go to Irish pubs. I can't, but the thing is, I don't throw my, I'm not willing to throw my life and my serenity away for, for a, a pint of Guinness. It just, it, 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 when I look at it, it with clarity, you know what I mean? And the greatest gift I got was, was the, the, 
the people that surround that I surround myself that are sober and that are working the program, every time I got a good idea, I run it by them. And they might go, yeah, let's really think about that. And then I know it's not as great as I thought yeah. it was. And it keeps me out of trouble because I have a few people that I trust and I run those thoughts by them. Because when I'm thinking and I'm the judge and the jury, and the th- I, I always give myself a pass, you know. And so it, it's critical for me and I think for anybody, if you have problems like that, is to, to find people that you look up to. Like I said, my old heroes were like Pete Rose and you saw what, you know, and Joe Namath and, and, yeah. and Mickey Mantle. And if you know anything about sports, they're all great, but they also have a really, what are they, just they're flawed. And yeah, all the yeah, actors right. that I like. Character defect. <laughs> and I try to, those, that, that's the old me. The new me is like, it's, it's the, the guy who comes and cuts our grass at the house. It's like, I have a museum and the, you, it's yes. every people that are doing what this, this, they're doing. And then some, Hey, I can cut your grass at the museum after my daughter's soccer practice on Sunday. I won't charge you a penny. No, no, let me pay it. No, I just insist on doing it. I want to, I want to support your museum. I want to help. I've, those are the people that I look up to. Yeah. Okay. Dude who, who it faces adversity and doesn't, and don't, run to drugs and alcohol to cope that they just do what the next indicated step is i have a friend whose name i won't name he has nothing to do with sobriety he doesn't have a problem with drinking or using he was a big 80s star and he's not he's not finding the work that he used to find and he drives uber now and if you hear his voice even if you've never seen his face you're like you'd turn around and go are you and he is that guy and i said you know you're my my hero and he goes oh get out of here i said dude when I was faced with your dilemma, when I went from like hip hop guy on MTV and on on every radio station every every twenty minutes, to living in a warehouse, like I wasn't willing to do what I had to do to not be semi homeless. I was running from that with a, with a fervor. I said, "You have two kids. You had an, a, an acting career. Now you've hit a dry spell, and you went and drove. You you drive Uber, and you yeah. didn't let that scare you." I said, "You are my." fucking hero bro you will always be my it's like making me want to cry right now i don't i haven't cried since mickey died in rocky probably 1970 <laughs> right so that's a long time ago but the truth is because that's what men do they go so what now what okay i'm not getting acting work i can do this temporarily and still get by and pay my bills that was too i was too better than that but i wasn't yeah. better than that i was worse than that because i was scared embarrassed and prideful and, and you were an addict, and addicts don't think like that. We're selfish, self-centered. The holier than thou and cooler than, you know, and all of that stuff is my problem. When I start to get too cool or too hip and too, that's when I know I'm not doing the work. And it happens. It still happens. It, again, we get a daily reprieve based on our spiritual maintenance. And and this maintenance is the, the key. You know, I learned that 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 maintenance is cheaper than repair. So I try not to run it into a wall anymore as I start to feel off my square and not doing it. I already know. When my girl goes, when's the last time you were on the, do you still do your meetings? As soon as she's asking, I look at her like with daggers because I know what she's saying. She's saying, you need a meeting. I, I know that. I know that question. Too. What was the last time you went to a meeting? Oh, man. That, you know you're not in a good place when someone you love. She's not even in the program, but she knows when I'm starting to get a little, you know, frazzled. And she's right. Nobody's ever said that to me and been wrong. You know what? And so I know when I'm doing the work, I get the relief. And so I got to do the work. It's great. There's part, I tell people all the time, I, I wish, I don't wish you had a drinking and using problem, but I wish you did 
at one point and, and had a program like, I wish everybody was doing the program that we were doing. The world would be a lot better place. Because it's very practical. He talks about alcohol once in the 12 steps. Everything else is, is a guide for living. And it's a way to clear out the old stuff, make amends for what you've done, and then get in a position where you are clean and, and you can move forward with the, the power of your choice uh, that isn't you. And hand in hand, you can go out and, 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 and be a worker of one marker, a trusted servant, and, and, and help the next guy or girl. Uh, what a beautiful, what a simple, beautiful concept. It is. That's why there's so many different 12 step programs for like every, everything that anybody could possibly have. There's a 12 step program these days, which is awesome. You were talking about your museum and I got to tell you, okay, so I'm 51 years old yep. and I look damn good, babe. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, I'm 50. Any 51 year old woman was obsessed with the outsiders. Okay, come on. You had Tom Cruise. You had Patrick Swayze. You had Ralph Macchio. You had Rob Lowe. Oh my gosh. What I didn't do is that movie. You had Matt Dillon. You had Matt T. Thomas. Dillon. You had uh, <laughs> Diane Lane. <laughs> I mean, I, come on. What was it? Thomas Howell. He never made it that big, but Pony Boy. What, 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 what was his name again? T. Thomas Howell. He's still, doing, yeah, he's still doing his thing. You know what? Everybody had a different trajectory. And, and God bless you, Thomas Howell. He's been probably the number one supporter. Yes, he didn't. Nobody thought that the littlest guy in that movie, Tom Cruise, would be the biggest guy on the planet still. <laughs> but they've all had healthy uh, careers. All of them had different, you know, um, levels of success. But I, I'm happy to report that all of them to my knowledge, especially Tommy, Ralph. Ralph had a dry spot for a long time, and now he's seen yeah. a, a re revival through the, the karate oh, okay. and they're go, go, yeah. the karate. We watch it. I haven't missed an episode. That's what I'm saying. So, you know, everybody's everybody's had their, you know, the up down life life, right? And so um yeah, so in, in a, you if you would have told me ten years ago that I'd be sitting in Tulsa, Oklahoma as the owner of the Outsiders House Museum. I would have thought you were crazy. I saw the movie. I'm 52. I saw it when I was 13 or 14 on its theatrical release. Found in love with the. I was a latchkey kid, like I said, which meant, you know, I, I lived in, a, in condominiums, which had a lot of broken homes where they were going through divorce and mom would get a condo and take the kids and blah, blah, blah. So we ran around. We were middle class, like I said. Um, but we felt disconnected. We didn't feel like I felt personally like I didn't. I was born into the wrong family. I didn't have love at home. So what does a guy like me go do or anybody in that situation? They go, if they were smart or they were guided well, they would have been, they would have found sports or some kind of positive activity. But what I found was gangs and cliques and crews and all of that stuff. And, but I did go try to replicate that family through brotherhood. And that movie for me was always my favorite movie. Um, after House of Pain broke up, it was about a decade of just, you know, downward spiraling and trying to figure out what I was doing for a living. Uh, at the end of that, I put another group together called La Coca Nostra. And to make mm -hmm. a long story short, all of the members of House of Pain decided to join that group. Uh, it was yeah, we were group. working out to it this morning, actually. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And so it was like a super group at that time. We had a couple bands that had broken up and we'd put a, pieces of those bands together and it was called La Coca Nostra. And that brought me on to, to Tulsa, Oklahoma in 2009. And on my time off here, we had three days off here. It, it, it just kept bothering me. Tulsa, Tulsa, Tulsa. Why does that sound so familiar? And I was like, oh my God, I think The Outsiders was filmed here. And I think they were the author wrote it about here. She was from here. So after digging around a little bit, going online, and there was very little information, I was able to get a cab to take me out to the drive-in from the movie, The Admiral Twin, which is still here. 
I found the park, which is Crutchfield Park. It's the park that Johnny comes to uh, to Pony's defense and, and stabs uh, Bob and kills Bob the Soch for trying to drown his buddy. And then by finding the park, I found the house. And the house, it, it, it's a close, it, for me, I, I was 40-something years old, uh, sober, and, and it was the closest to like a time machine that you could imagine. Tulsa, Oklahoma still looks like it did when they filmed here in some mm-hmm. areas. And these, this area of North Tulsa completely is like the land that time forgot. So walking on that, the hollowed grounds of the, the drive-in, which looked exactly, nothing's changed. So you really, in my mind, I was walking around a, a set from 82 that hadn't been stricken in 2009. You know, I just thought about this. This is kind of like a spiritual thing. I don't know if this is plant. But you were a big fan of the outsiders and you grew up, you know, in, in the way that you grew up and everything. And your band was called House of Pain. Is there any correlation to that? Yeah, who knows? Right. I have a lot of houses <laughs> in my in my thing. It, it'd be nice. To, uh, yeah. I, I'm going to tell you about another house after we're done with this, which is cool. So, yeah. So what happened was I started looking for the locations. I found the locations. I put them on the social media. It was a new thing at the time. MySpace was in full effect. Facebook would just started to gain some steam. And what I noticed that I was getting hit left, right, and center from people I hadn't talked to in years. That was like, dude, that's my favorite movie. I work at Warner Brothers. Where on the lot is that set? I can't believe it's still here. I'm like, dude, it's not on Warner Brothers lot. It's not in Burbank. It's in Tulsa. They're like, what's Tulsa? A lot of people didn't know <laughs> what Tulsa was. Yeah, people were like, Tulsa, what's Tulsa? I'm like, the town in, in Oklahoma. Oh. I was actually on the radio there. I think it was KMOD. Is there a station uh-huh. called KMOD there? Yeah, yeah, cool. yeah, yeah. Voice Very track. Cool. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, sorry. Go on. <laughs> No, and so, you know, at the time I, I took the photos and I did a little, you know, put the addresses and, and showed people the scene from the movie and then what was still there now. And it, I began a hobby of urban exploring. I used that bus. Like I said, I was highly caffeinated, newly sober, had a couple of years and um, and I bought a new camera. And I thought this is the first time in, 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 in my life that I've been, we've had Wi-Fi on a bus, a laptop and mm-hmm. smartphones. And I started going on that tour to all, every time I get to a town, I try to Google like points of interest in particular pop culture ones so when i went to minneapolis i went to mary tyler moore's house and i went to the mall where she throws her hat up in the opening of the sequence when i went to dallas i went to the grassy knoll where jfk was shot and i think i might have went to mickey mantle's gravesite. When I got to New York, I went to all kinds of different spots, you know, from just, you know, matching photos in front of CBGBs to the fire hydrant that led to the uh, David Berkowitz, the son of Sam's arrest. And I started posting this all online and it starts to get traction. And I start this this urban exploring collective that's still going online called Delta Bravo Urban Exploration Team. And for the next five years, I find myself traveling a lot and I'm always passing through Oklahoma. And every time I do, it was it, m- minimal it was once a year. Sometimes it was three different times a year for, for various reasons. And I would always make a beeline to see this house. And, uh, after five years of seeing the outsider's house, uh, there were tenants in it. They were tearing it apart. Originally when I found it, it was for sale for 42 grand, which I couldn't believe. So in 2009, somebody buys it and does a fluff and buff. They, they get tenants in there and the tenants just don't keep the, the house up nicely, but I still couldn't believe it was for 42 grand, but I had to walk away at that time. And because I was I just didn't know the first thing about Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I had no business buying the cool, world's <laughs> coolest greaser fort as a collectible. And so five years later, I noticed that they're tearing out most of that neighborhood. They're putting Habitat for Humanity houses, which are 
are donated, you know, and, and, and they're, they're low, they're houses for people who wouldn't normally qualify for a traditional loan. They give them very uh, good terms and they build houses and I love what they do, but I was not a fan if they were going to tear the outsider's house down. And my gut told me they were going to tear the outsider's down, house down because they were one block away. Every year I'd come, they would be another block and tearing everything out and building these houses. And so at year five, I started to panic and those that my spidey sense went off. And so I started to dig around. What we were able to do, me and a friend were able to find the owner, contact her. And through another friend, we made, we said, listen, we know that the house is off market. We see it's being torn. It's about to get torn down if you don't do something with it. And it seems like your tenants are also tearing it from the inside down. Uh, She said, yes, um, the tenants are eight months behind in rent. It was for sale for 42 grand. I won't take a penny less than 20. My buddy buddy countered. He had never seen the movie, read the book, or could care less about this. It was actually a burden for him. He's my buddy, so I'm just – (laughs) but he has a lot, a lot of money. He's a wheeler and dealer. That's why I had him call on my behalf. He couldn't believe that there was a house on earth for 40 grand, much less the the lady would settle for 20. And that's half. I mean, nobody's – Right, but being the the hustler that he is, he said, ma'am, I've seen the house. It's atrocious. I wouldn't give you a penny more than 15 grand, which she said, fine. She said, also, the lot next to it is included because you come out of nowhere. I I don't have time to separate it, but I'll take 15 grand. You have to wait 30 days. And my buddy called me back. He said, you bought the house. I said, what? I said, I just asked you to call her. What do you mean I bought it? He said, you bought the house. You wanted the house. I made a deal. 15 grand. I could not believe it. At the time, I had 28 grand in my name, though, and had no future work in front of me. The band, the Lakoka thing, it kind of hit a, you know, it, it goes up and it comes down. So we were on hiatus with that. House of Pain wasn't doing any more shows. And I didn't know what I did for a living. So the $28,000 that I had to my name, I put 20 to get the keys to that house. I paid 5000 for the tenants who were eight months behind to move out. And I paid fifteen for the house. When I got in the house, I realized that it was a fair deal. That house was disgusting. And if you've ever seen <laughs> episode of Hoarders, Hoarding and whatever, that's what they were doing in there. Shit, so now you have, you bought it for 15 I or 20. It for 15. I put another. I got to put in thousands to fix it. Yeah, and I know the first thing about any of that stuff. I, I don't <laughs> know anything about anything. So I asked, here's the, here's the kicker. I panicked. I realized that this is no longer going to be my my new home in Tulsa, Oklahoma. That happens to be the house from the outsiders. I thought I need help and I need help bad. And if I'm going to ask for help, I have to give back and I have to turn this into something like a museum. And so that's what I did. And I put a GoFundMe together and it did well for a minute and then it stalled out. Um, I'll just give you the, sh- the cliff notes. Uh, the author, Essie Hinton, who is uh, alive and well, uh, she's the number one uh donor to this project she was happy that we were doing it and still happy that we did it uh took three and a half years jack white uh musician and entrepreneur gave us thirty thousand dollars heard of him (laughs) are we talking about the jack white yeah billy idol when he came to town i went to see him because i don't want to say we're old friends and i I get you we're we we're associates uh we've been in the room together and have conversations many a time i'm number number one fan as a kid still love billy idol always love billy idol I went to his show. Uh, my buddy who plays guitar with him, Billy Morrison, shout out to him. Billy said, mate, we're in, we're in Tulsa. Come on by. So I get there backstage, still doing the fundraising. I had been into the house at this point almost two years. I mean, it, it, took, a, it took three years and change to get this house up to snuff and then to find the collection that we found. But I get to right before Billy goes on, he goes, mate, how's the house going? I said, house? What house? He said, no, <laughs> the outsider's house. I said, you know about the outsider's house? He said, yeah, I want to give you a little something too. I said, 
so wait, you know about the outsiders and you want to give me something? He goes, man, I'm not going to give you what Jack gave you, but I give you a little something. And I was dying. I was cracking up because he even knew what Jack White gave me. That's <laughs> awesome. Oh, and my God. Jack and God bless. And he, he, I brought him shirts and he wore the shirt on stage, which is a big feather in my cap because, it, you know, it ran in the news and all that stuff. And again, this thing has completely changed my life. It, you know, I wish everything in life had worked out the way this project worked out. Um, because it just hits the, the, it's, it's all due to the author, you know, and I'll just give you again, the cliff notes. The author is still alive. She's 74 years old. I can't believe she's still alive because that book's been around. I mean, they, we, they've been in schools for years. I wouldn't read it. I just saw the movie so I could see the boys. Me too. Besides the boys, but I want to (laughs) So listen, she writes the book at 15 and a half. She writes it here at Will Rogers High School. She was failing English and got a D plus in creative writing. That there is an astonishing fact. It is also the first time in literary history that the young adult writes about young being a young adult for young adults, hence the young adult category. That category is as, as significant as hip hop is to music or rock is to music. We can argue right now, me and you, about who's the first rock record because it's debatable. Are you calling Robert Johnson's the first rock if it's blues that trans or is it hip hop? We can have the same debate, but we cannot have that debate when it comes to young adult literature because everybody knows the young adult literature category started off from S.C. Hinton. And if they don't know, they should know that category is the number one category in books of all time. Okay, not to discount that that book has never been out of print in 54 years. And on the 50th anniversary, which was only a couple years or four years ago, it sold more than all the years combined. So I'm told, I don't know that's a fact, but I've heard that a few different times. Mm-hmm. It is required reading for most seventh graders. It is the yeah. book of choice for most librarians and English teachers. And it is the book you give kids like me who would rather see the movie and can't be bothered with reading. And it opens up a, a whole world that they didn't even know exists through literature. So God bless Essie Hinton. Everything we do is for the love of Essie Hinton. It doesn't help. It doesn't hurt that the librarian who picked up on the tipping point that all of her, ki- her students were, were gravitating to this book like no other. She writes a letter to Francis Ford Coppola, one of, if not the best and my favorite directors of all time. I asked her, why would you write a letter to the, the director of Godfather and Apocalypse Now? And she said, Danny, he did such a masterful job of staying true to the book in the black stallion that i thought he was a shoe in and i forgot that he did the black stallion mm-hmm. uh he gets the letter which is also miraculous he reads the letter also miraculous he agrees with her miraculous then he sends his producer fred Roos out to get the book he falls in love with it he makes a deal and he comes to tulsa oklahoma which is also miraculous back then even in 82 you would go you would go on a studio lot down to you know to to make this movie on Warner Brothers lot, then take the whole Hollywood crew and cast and make them come to Oklahoma. He not only did that book, he bought mid mid movie. He bought her second book, Rumblefish, and and made that into a movie as well. So they're both Coppola films. They're both Essie Hinton books. It's twelve o'clock. Sorry, my computer likes to talk a lot. <laughs> and, they're both, and, and they're both turned into. Uh, classic movies when they both hit the theaters they were both flops you may not know that but the outsiders was a flop in the movie theater it doesn't make it doesn't find its audience until it goes on the vhs tape and we start to rent it so i bought it in the theater but i was one of very few who saw it by the time you actually did see it in the theater i I didn't i I didn't by the time it gets on hbo or you have the 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 ability to rent it through your mom or dad, whatever, uh, to see it. That's where we fall in love with it. And we start playing it over and over and over. And it takes hold rumble fish, the same. It's a cult classic 
People love it, but it was not, it did not do anything at the box office. It launches the Brat Pack. Those actors all go on to bigger and better things. And now here I come, you know, it's almost 40 years. So next year, uh, 2023, I think is the 40th anniversary. Uh, And they're already working on a a redo of it now. They're just cleaning up the, I talked to the archivist at at Zoetrope, which is Coppola's studios, and they're cleaning up the color and, and they're, they're, they're doing a little, you know, uh, what could I call it? A rebuff of the movie. And they're going to release facelift. it. Too. <laughs> a little face because there's parts where the, the footage is a little grainy and dark. And the, it continues. There's a there's a play that they're doing, The Outsiders, right now that's in Chicago, that if it makes it through the Chicago uh, thing, it's going to end up on Broadway, which we have a feeling it, it certainly will. COVID kind of put a wrinkle in that. And mm-hmm. I get student after student, we get our biggest uh, – customer really is tours that are Monday through Friday at the museum of students who were in seventh or eighth grade who were reading the book or read the book, then go see the movie. And then they come to the house and it's like a Willy Wonka experience. They get to go and see all of the stuff that they have been reading about. I have the largest collection of movie worn screen worn, uh, wardrobe from the film we have all kinds of photos that have been unseen and unpublished photoed in the house the house looks just like it did in the movie i was able to restore it uh and and mimic all the stuff that you would have seen in the movie through faux finishing and painting and and all kinds of you know basically set building tricks and we have the largest known library of se hinton books known to man and if, if there's anything that i'm really proud of because i didn't do any of this alone was that i had the courage to ask for help, and it's hard when you're six foot six and alpha male, but I, I spent my whole life not asking for help and it nearly killed me. So there's no shame in asking for help and the help came and, I, and, and I'll never forget that. And I tell people often, I speak to kids all the time and I said, sometimes you don't have to have a plan and the proper amount of money to do something. I said, that's not always the best advice, but sometimes it takes what it takes. And I, if I would have waited around for the right budget or, or a plan, I would have never bought this thing. I just jumped in head first. And sometimes that's what it takes because the number one question I get is why you? Why did it take an outsider? And I said, I see that what you've done there. It's a pun. It did take an outsider. And I said, but I just couldn't imagine life without this house on earth. And I was going to do anything I could to try to save it. And I did save it. And now it's a beautiful museum. You said something about a house and the and the 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 connective, you know, uh tissue mm-hmm. between that. I just I've been fortunate enough to buy the house across the street from the outsider's house, which was seen in the movie barely as Pony's running home after falling asleep in the lot. You see it as he gets to the front door of the outsider's house. I just purchased that house across the street with the money that we make at the outsider's house, and I'm turning that into a themed Airbnb. So we've been asked for three years and and longer, will there be an opportunity for us to sleep in the outsider's house as an Airbnb? And no is the answer, but I've done the best next best you can thing go across the street you can go across the street and have a real greaser experience and i have a massive collection so we will put stuff in that airbnb that you've never seen before and i get the keys for that on the 31st of this month july and i'm hopefully we can do a really good month worth of work around the clock to have it open you know what is it july august september so so let's say someone wants to go to tulsa and and check this out how can how can they find uh danny boy or danny o'connor theoutsidershouse.com we have a wonderful website uh and all the social media you just type in the outsiders house it all comes up uh it is the best thing that's ever happened to me and i attribute it all to my sobriety because i was i had enough money i was in uh, of sound mind even though it was a crazy leap of faith 
I learned that in, 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 in sobriety and it was for the right reasons. And that's when the help shows up and that's God doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. And I attribute all of this thing to, to God and the, the, the 12 steps of the, you know, of, of, of recovery and uh, without them I'm doomed. So anytime I get asked to share my experience, strength and hope, you're doing me a favor. So thank you for allowing me to, uh, you know, to share my story. Thank you. I mean, it's just awesome. And what I'm getting out of it also is how they do say in the big book, when we try to be the director and when you just, you know, gave it to God, yep. probably the most opposite thing that you would have imagined in your life yeah, happened in your life and gave you the most joy, because I feel uh-huh. like you're getting more of a wholesome joy, a better joy 100%. right now than you did from, you know, the, the, uh, pop star. I'm a hundred percent. First of all, if there's no bigger rock star, I just told Essie Hinton too. I said, you don't understand. I almost flaked out on our first meeting cause I was terrified. She said, Oh my God, I'm glad you didn't. Why would you do that? I said, cause I was terrified because I've met everybody I've ever wanted to meet in life. And, and then some, all my favorite heroes I've met. And I said, but nobody was on the list higher than you. I said, authors are just at a mythical level above rock stars, above actors, above all that bullshit. The writer is the first. And I just thought I would fuck it up and put my foot in my mouth or say something you didn't like. <laughs> and she said, Danny, I adore you and I love you. And, and I said the same. And again, I just, I, I, walked through that fear that's another thing i learned in aa and in in the 12-step program and i when i go to the museum i assure you there are times where i can't be bothered i don't want to go i just was there four hours ago and now i got to open it up for somebody else and as soon as that family shows up and they're all bright-eyed and the smiles are you could put a banana in their mouth sideways the smile is so big that's when it clicks shut up show up. That's why you're here. And that's the, that's the real reward is to see the smiles. I've heard girls scream and cry as soon as I open the door and let them in. They, they've let out shrieks, literally tears. Like they've seen, you know, the, the Beatles at JFK. It's, it's, it's cathartic to the people because they've, they've read this book since they're kids, they've seen the movie and then they finally get to go to the house. And so, yes, the joy I get out of that is to be able to, to be the gatekeeper and to see those people experience something that they look forward to their whole life to see. So thank you so much. They, I, I would love to, to go see it myself. I mean, I was a huge fan, my friends, I'm just thinking about my four friends, <laughs> all of us growing up and watching it over and over and over again, like nonsense yeah. and just so in love with all these groundbreaking characters and the story. And it, it, one other thing that's why, like I, you couldn't get me to read a book because, uh, just because I was me. But that was the one movie that actually got me to go back and say, you know, what, I'm going to read the book. There you go. You know, so power, inspiration and all of the above. I cannot express my gratitude enough for you coming on Sober Exposure. Yeah. Next time, I promise I'll give you all the 90s dirt that I got. And if you ever find yourself in Tulsa, Oklahoma on August 3rd at the museum on the lawn, Tommy Howell, a.k.a. C. Thomas Howell, a.k.a. Pony Boy, is doing an acoustic set. He has learned to play guitar, and he is now a singer-songwriter, and he's going to do his first ever show there on the lawn. And it's a sold-out event, but if you find yourself in Tulsa, give me a call, and I'll put you at the the, the table with with me and perhaps the author and everybody else. So oh my gosh. August, this is August 3rd? August 3rd. If not, there's many, the, a lot of the actors have been through and a lot of them are planning to come through. So we'll, we're, more more is to be uh, revealed. 
<laughs> Next time I'll come on, I'll give you all the, I'll give you the, the, the TMZ version of all the crazy stuff in the nineties that you. Yeah. Oh. Or they could watch the, they could watch the, um, the 90s, yeah. documentary nineties. Um, it was actually a great doc. I loved it. No we really doc. enjoyed it. And it was just so funny how we were watching it. And then, uh, then you came up in my life. Literally yeah. like two weeks after we watched the documentary. So, yeah. all right. I cannot thank you enough. I'm so thrilled. You got me pumped up on sobriety. I'm going to go to a meeting when, when we're done with this because God knows. I'll send you my list tomorrow. Yes. My man was saying to me, he's like, when was the, he gave me the, the line? When was the last time he went to a meeting? Because I'm getting a little squirrely here. I'm acting like a total bitch. So uh, sober exposure, me, Jennifer Wilde. And thank you again, Danny boy. Good times. Need more? Of course you do. The show's all about needing more. Go to my website at soberexposure.show or get stuck on my Instagram at soberexposure underscore podcast. Mm-hmm.